Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on the Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. Well, good morning, Venture. It is great to see everybody today. I'm encouraged today. Just send a word of greeting. I got back late last night. I spent the last two days up at Don Pedro with our high school ministry. Had the opportunity to speak to them a couple of times there. They're coming back tomorrow. And I just want you to hear as a church, just uh, not only Don Pedro, this week and last week in the college ministry, Chuck took up a big group of college students and all that's been happening with Hume and with everything else. I am so encouraged about what God is doing in our whole next generation ministry. I am. I really am. I'm so thankful for our team. I'm thankful for the, the leaders that we have and all the ones with it. And for all of you that plug in, you know, I was watching the adults who've, who've taken several of their days. Some of them, we had about four boats going the whole time. And, and I'm looking at these drivers and the ones that are out there and they're a couple of guys in our body. They were there seven in the morning, seven at night, they're on the lake because they want to invest in teens and teach them and be a part of it. And so it's exciting to see what God's doing in that. I'd encourage you, would you pray with me? We're still looking for a children's ministry pastor. That's one of our key areas of need. And so would you pray that God would re- lead the right person? Uh, we, we see this team growing in so many ways and we are looking for, for the kind of person that will invest in our children in the same way that we're seeing that investment across the board. So I'd ask, would you pray for that? Would you pray for our school? We're launching the school year. You heard there's some teacher needs that we have. Would you pray for just next generation? Uh, we hear all the bad news. You hear all the time, oh, Gen Z and next generation, all that. I'm telling you, I'm more excited about the next generation because I see more of them owning their faith and taking a stand for Christ. And we need to invest that much more in it. In fact, before we start the sermon today, why don't we take a minute and just thank God for what he's doing in that. Will you pray with me? Father, we do come before you. We thank you. We thank you for just the, the privilege of kids. That right now on this campus, there are babies being held. They're little ones that they're being taught Bible stories for the first time. There's children worshiping you. There's young people up at Don Pedro that uh, adults are, are having great conversations with them. Lord, we see how you're moving on the college campuses. We see how you're moving in so many ways. And I just want to stop and say, thank you, God. You're so good to us. I pray that we would steward well what you've given us. We do pray that you would lead us well. We pray for this next generation. We pray that they would lead us as they have to own their faith in a way that uh, is so challenging today. But as you're moving through that, we, we lift them before you and we thank you for the privilege of being able to invest in them. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, if you've got your Bible, open it to James 5. Go ahead and turn there. We're going to read through the passage together. It's not a real long passage that we're looking at today. If you didn't bring a Bible, grab the blue one in front of you. Page 1201, I think. About 1201, right in that there. I want us to read this together. Because as we go through this passage, I want you to hear it directly from James. And and can I just say, as we dive into it, buckle up, buttercup. (laughs) 
I mean, James has been on a little bit of a roll lately and he, he's kind of getting a little more momentum and, and he's somebody who doesn't pull back from really sharing what he's feeling, what God's leading in it and what we need to hear. So let's read James 5. We'll just read the first six verses. He says, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. I told you, I mean, he's right out of the gate here. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Woo, he's going. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now this is about as strong as we've had in the book of James yet. And as he addressed, he says, this rich person, these rich people. And, and commentators debate, is he, is he wailing on? Is he, he really addressing a group that's outside the church? Is it actually people in the church? We, we don't really know. There was a group of landowners who at that time period, most people had no land. And so these are landowners. And because it's an agrarian economy, everybody had to work for them. They had the only businesses in town pretty much. And because they had so much control, they used that control, they used that wealth for their own game, even withholding what they should do, they oppressed with that. And James goes Old Testament on them. I mean, this is like an Old Testament prophet. And, and there's this part where the language, and when you read the Old Testament prophets, and it's interesting, if you read this part of James, it echoes a lot of the words of Isaiah chapter two. You know, you'll see the same thing in Micah. Amos the prophet, almost the exact same words of, of really attacking this kind of approach and especially wealth that's used in this way. Malachi three, I mean, double whammy of not only are you oppressing, God says you're robbing from me. You're not giving in the process with it. And so, so James is, is using that prophetic type language and it's by design. It's by design to kind of be that slap in the face to wake you up. Sometimes you kind of need that metaphorical two by four, you know, up, upside the head to go, this might be a problem more than you think it is. Uh, I, one time I had a couple, they came in for marriage counseling and uh, we're sitting there and he talks and then she talks and the whole time they're talking, they're describing the other person and just how bad the other person is. And then she does this, she does this, and this, and this, and this, and then he does it. And so they kind of get to the end of it and they said, you know, kind of like, ta-da, which one's worse? And, and finally, I just looked at him and I said, you know, I think I agree with both of you. This sounds miserable. It would be absolutely miserable to be married to either one of you. <laughs> we kind of did that. And then, and then he goes, so what are you saying? We're supposed to get a divorce? I said, oh no, I'm not saying that at all. Neither of you have biblical grounds for divorce. And, and honestly, it's good that God put the two of you together so the misery doesn't spread. Because <laughs> you'll just make two other people miserable. 
Now at this point, he starts to get a little mad and then she gets defensive and they spend the next few minutes telling me, well, we're not as bad as you think. And then, you know, kind of doing that. And finally I stopped, I said, okay, so we agree on one thing at least. And they kind of stopped and then I said, look, guys, there's no reason this can't be a good marriage. But as long as you're sitting here thinking the main problem with your marriage is the person sitting next to you, probably not gonna get there. And you need to deal with you and each other. Now, to their credit, that couple worked on their marriage. They actually went to a marriage counselor. They stopped seeing me. Big shock, huh? Yeah. <laughs> they went to a counselor. They worked on that. Now, let me say when I, when I say that, because anytime you kind of reference that, every marriage is different. And so I, there's some couples that the problem in the marriage is one of the people. They are doing destructive things and the other one's being faithful in it. So, so it's not, you can't use one story and apply it to everything in it. He, here's the point though. They need a little splash in the face, a little like, come on, you, you gotta wake up. And that's what James is doing with us. And even if it's people outside of the church, even if it's somebody else he's looking at, he's using this language in a way for all of us to recognize we may have a problem, there may be a sickness more than we like to admit. Now, when I say that, and I would say there's, there's this sickness that he's dealing with, here's the issue. The issue is not wealth. The issue is not wealth, by the way. There's nothing in scripture that says it's sinful to be wealthy. And, and in fact, let's just real quick, in your head, I want everybody here, think of the wealthiest person you know of. Think of the, the wealthiest person you know of. Right, everybody have somebody in mind? I'm, I'm, I can answer it for you, by the way. Unequivocally, the wealthiest person you know of is God. You go, oh, wait. No, he's actually a person, by the way. That's part of our theology, three persons, one Godhead. He's the wealthiest by far. In fact, scripture says he owns everything. It's all his. So if being wealthy was a sin, that would be a problem. He owns it all. In fact, that's the amazing thing about God. Let me give you just a, a side note because every so often you just need to stop and theologically just marvel at our God. God is the only person as the Godhead. He's the only one who can be all of anything and it not overwhelm him. Uh, think of power, he is all powerful. Now for any of us to be all powerful, in fact, we have to have checks and balances and all this because power corrupts us at some point. You get all powerful, we can't handle it. God's all powerful and yet he's never corrupted by it. God is all knowing. Can you imagine if any of us was all knowing? Some of you are married to a spouse who thinks they're all-knowing, but if any of us was, was actually all-knowing, can you imagine how we would use that on other people? We'd be on Jeopardy every day. Like, you know, we're just racking it up with it. God's all-knowing and he can handle that. God has all the wealth, it's all his. And there's no part of that that unlike us, man, it would overwhelm us, it doesn't overwhelm us because he never finds his identity in it. I mean, if you read through scripture, God never celebrates himself because he's rich. 
You never see God kind of doing the Scrooge McDuck, you know, bathing in the gold coins, you know, woo, look at me. Or the rap star, you know, God's not up in heaven with the angels with a big wad of money going, I'm gonna make it rain in here. You know, I mean, it's, that's how we do because we gotta show what we have. But see, God doesn't find his identity in it. He doesn't celebrate the stuff he owns. He celebrates who he is and his character. And, and he's so secure in that that even though it's all his, he shares it with us. And he's so gracious with us and he's so sharing that we actually think it's ours. Can you imagine how generous somebody could be that they give you everything so much and even though it's theirs, they allow you to own it so much that you think it's yours. See, the, the, the point here, the issue's not wealth. And, and, and for some people, and if you're like me, I, you know, I grew up pretty poor and you kind of get a chip on your shoulder and start, and, and you see it kind of in the world, almost that sense, wealthy people, rich people, that's the problem. And then you read a passage like this and James comes out of the gate and he goes, you rich people. And you go, yeah, give it to the rich. Now, part of our problem is we never define ourselves as rich. So it's always some other rich person out there. Here's the issue that James is getting to. It's much more pervasive. The issue is greed. The issue is greed. And we, we don't like greed. Despite, I mean, uh, it, for some of us, you remember the 80s, that movie Wall Street? Michael Douglas played Gordon Gecko, and he's like, greed is good. And his point was, man, it's what drives the world. It drives the economy and all that. If you survey today, it's fascinating across culture, religious, non-religious, pretty much the thing that comes up the most when people say, what is wrong with our country? What's wrong with our society? And they'll put materialism greed right at the top. Almost, it, I forget the exact scale of it, but it's the top one over and over. 80% of the people would say, we think it's the number one problem in it. We see this greed, this consumption, this materialism. Now, here's the other fascinating part. Then when everyone is surveyed about, do you struggle with greed? It ranks as the last thing that any of us struggle with. In fact, they, they've done surveys with all the seven deadly sins and they list them. You know what always comes in last, what people claim? Greed. And so, and so we got this fascinating thing where when we all look out there, we go, oh man, we got this greed problem out there. Now, who has the problem? Well, not me, not any of us. And, and so there's this deceptiveness about it. And, and I think it's one of the reasons that the prophets had to be so strong. I think it's one of the reasons James is so strong. It's one of the reasons scripture just, just highlights it. If you, you look at it, Paul said this. He says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. He doesn't say the having of money, he says it's the love. You can be a broke, greedy person. You realize that? It's, it's just, you're always wanting and you're wanting more. So you can't ever look at it and go, well, I can't be greedy because I'm not rich. No, Paul says this love of money, you can be chasing the craving some have wandered away. Jesus highlights, he says, you can't have two masters. You're gonna serve one or the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God in money. It's such a hard issue. And one of the reasons, if you read through the New Testament, one of the reasons the Pharisees and the scribes hated Jesus so much 
is he called them on this issue. I think it's a thing that, that religious people in particular, because you can kind of put out all the good religious things you're doing and nobody really calls you on your greed. Jesus in Matthew 23, look at this. He says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. He goes, you guys are experts of cleaning the outside so that everybody looks at you and go, oh man, he is so righteous. He does everything right. And Jesus said, you know what's going on inside? You're dealing with greed. Ugh, none of us likes that word. You're dealing with the sense of self-indulgence out of it. And, and so you, you look at it and, and this issue with it, it, I would say it's like a sickness that no one wants to claim they actually have. But then you start asking, you go, what, or do you have some of the symptoms? I mean, let's say the, the flu was just ravaging around and, and we know the flu's out there, it's, it's going around. And then I run into you and I go, hey, you don't look so well. Do you have the flu? No, I don't have the flu. Do you have a fever? Well, yeah, I have a fever, but I don't have the flu. Are you achy? Oh yeah, I'm really achy, but I don't have the flu. Are you tired? I'm, I'm tired. I mean, you start checking off the list. At some point, it might be healthy to go, you might have a problem with this. And so part of what James does in this passage is he's describing this extreme case of abuse and this part of what the Old Testament prophets are doing. When they're railing on something, it's easy to just look at it and go, oh, just let the bad people have it. The other part of it is though, there's this examination of my heart and life because they didn't think they were bad people. They were blinded to it. And maybe I have some blind spots with this issue. Come on, we, we've got to be honest. If we live in a culture where survey after survey, everybody goes, greed's our number one problem. Somebody has to have a problem with it. And so every so often it's good to have that wake up call, that, that water to the face and to actually look at it. Let, let's look at some of the symptoms that James describes in it. Look at the first one, hoarding, hoarding, storing up more than I need. And that's another word none of us like. You like hoarder. No, Tim, I'm not a hoarder. Hoarders are those weird people on A&E. You know, and their whole house is filled with stuff. I'm not saying that, that you've gone to the condition, a point where you're, you're piling up everything. But if you look at this, he's describing, especially around money and resources, man, you've piled this up at a level. And, and he describes these, these rich, he says, your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, their corrosion will be evidence against you and, will, and eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last day. Now, one of the things I love about James is no matter what hard things I'm saying to you, it's really soft compared to this. So, you know, he, he does all the heavy lifting for me. But, but he looks at, in that day, there were three main forms of wealth. Three ways that you kind of, you, you didn't have a normal bank account. Here's what you had. You stored up grain, you had garments, and you had gold and silver. That, that, was, your, that was your different forms of savings. You had a portfolio and he's hitting all three of them. These, these rich people that they're looking at and they're going, we are set. Man, we have the savings, we have everything. And he goes, actually, your riches, the word rotted is spoiled. 
And so the riches in this first part of it is all that grain, all this agrarian society, you, you've set it all aside. You have so much, it's, it's just, it's spoiled. Your garments are moth-eaten and your gold and silver have corroded. Now you, you go, well, gold and silver can't corrode. Here's what he's pointing to. He's not saying, oh, if you went and checked your, your silos today, all the grain is rotted. He's saying, I want you to step back and you're saving it all for this day and you're sitting on it in this day and you're acquiring to a level on this day and you're not thinking about these, the day. And in light of the day, man, that stuff, it doesn't carry over. So much so spoiled, it's done. And, and you ought to remember his first words, he goes, you ought to be wailing. You ought to have a little bit of a panic point about this. And, and it's so counterintuitive because here's the reality for us. We store up because we feel kind of panicky. Because we want to have more. And, th and there's this fine line, hear me, all of us, you need to plan well. Scripture talks about planning well. You need to financially plan well. You need to have someone that helps you with that. There's nothing in the Bible against that. But for every one of us, especially if you're finding your security in it, there's a healthy place to stop and go, what am I planning for? How much is too much? What does God actually want me to do with this? And force yourself to have some of those uncomfortable questions around it. That as you do that, that, that sense of that, that hoarding, the, the problem with all of it, when you find your security in it, see, this is how God's so different than us. God owns everything, gets no identity from it, gets no security from it because he doesn't need anything other than himself. And he wants us to learn in the same way that no matter how he's blessed us, no matter what we have, no matter how we, we plan for that, as good as all that is, that's not our security. He is. And it frees us then. And it calls us to that place. Because remember what I said, you, the, the greed can get you even if you don't have much because you're always living your life. Oh man, if I only had more, if I only had more. You know, when, when Mount Vesuvius erupted and, and the city of Pompeii was destroyed back in the first century, it's fascinating because all the people were caught. I mean, life was just frozen in time because the people that were caught in it. And there's one woman in particular that they found her and in her hands, she's put all these rings on and her feet are headed toward the gate, but she's looking back. And when they finally saw what she was looking back and reaching back for, it was a bag of pearls. And just kind of this, this frozen in time of even as she should be running for her life, it's like, no, I, I, gotta, I gotta grab this stuff. I gotta have this. And you're frozen reaching for it. And, and I think about that image at times because in my own heart, I can find myself always in that kind of pose of, oh, I wanna reach for more. And it's healthy for each of us to just stop and examine and go, is there any part of me, the symptom that I've gone beyond what I need? To, I'm, I'm hoarding some because I'm finding security in it. 
more than I am in God. Look, look at the second symptom. You're hurting. You're hurting. I gain at the expense of others. Look, look what this, he says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, they're crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And so in this case, because these guys were so wealthy, they're the only game in town. They're the only business in town. And so, so the people, the laborers, the harvesters, the people that came and worked for them, they would agree on a set of amount. And it was not uncommon in that time period that you got paid at the beginning. And then when it was time to pay them at the end, the landowners, ah, well, I'm not gonna actually pay you that rate. Ah, the harvest didn't come in the way I thought it would. And the reality is they just had the power to do it. Nobody could stop them. This is part of what, what James is prophetically railing against of, of you're sitting on this and, and then you're hurting those who've helped you get there. And he's calling for a sense of justice in that. Now, I, I would hope that none of us are withholding from those who maybe work from you. But this, this, this healthy place of just looking at it, I have to look at it as a consumer. Man, as what I'm purchasing, is it hurting someone around the world in order to, for me to always have what I want? There's a healthy place as a believer to look at that and go, okay, how do I evaluate that? How, how, do, how do I steward that well? How do I approach this in a way that, that I'm not using my power and wealth? I'm not always squeezing everybody for everything. I remember uh, years ago, we lived in Bangkok. And uh, when we were in Bangkok, especially if you had people, friends that were in, you know, a lot of times if you've gone to a country, there's a lot of street markets. And you go to the street markets, you buy t-shirts and you buy, you know, touristy trinkets, other things that are for sale there. As you go down the market, especially if you're American walking along, I mean, you come up to a table, table t-shirts, and the first price they say to you is about, you know, four or five times what it's about. And so you kind of, you know, walk away and you, the whole thing, you're bartering. It's kind of a game a little bit. And then you barter down a little bit more, a little bit more. And if you've lived there long enough, you kind of know the actual price you, you can get. And so you kind of wait and then you, you use a little bit of tie in the bartering and they realize, but they'll, they'll often look at you and say, y'all rich for wrong, rich American, you can afford this. And you kind of, you know, barter. And, and I always get competitive with it. Like I'm going to down to the least. I remember one time I was with one of the teachers at our school that was there, Dave. And he had been in Thailand for a number of years. He's from Maine, real taciturn, calm demeanor. And he went, he had some friends in and they're doing their bargain, bargaining and bargaining. And, and they got down to a certain point and then Dave just kind of stopped. He stopped bargaining and he paid it. And I looked at him as we were walking. I'm like, Dave, come on. You, you know you could have gotten that for a lot cheaper. And he just kind of that main demeanor. He said, probably could, probably could. He goes, but you know, it hit me one day. I, I really am a rich American. I said, Dave, you're a poor missionary. <laughs> he goes, but you know, I don't have to squeeze it because that's their livelihood. And I've been given a lot. 
And he kept walking. And, and just that perspective of it that I thought, ah, oh, do I think that way? Do I realize, do I just realize what God's given and I'm using it for others? The third one is the high life. You're, you're living an indulgent lifestyle. When, when you live for yourself, the way he puts it in this verse, he, he says, you've lived on the earth in luxury. That word luxury in Greek, it's trufao. It's the word we get truffles from. You think of truffles, this delicacy. So he says, man, you've, you've just lived a life of delicacy and self-indulgence. You fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You got yourself fat in preparation for the slaughter. You did this. And, and, and you look at this and, and this level of indulgence, and I, I don't know about you, sometimes you see these, this level of indulgence in the world. That sometimes I'm like, really? Somebody spent money for that? In fact, I was, I was reading about a watch, this watch from uh, Romaine Jerome. I'm probably saying that wrong. I, I don't know these kind of watchmakers that much. They introduced a crocodile skin strapped watch that they called the Titanic DNA because it was made from metal that was salvaged from the Titanic. Yeah, ooh, there. Here's the first thing you would notice about the watch. It has no watch hands. In fact, all it can tell you is whether it's day or night. Listen to how they described it. They said a world's first, an exceptional timepiece that does not indicate the time. With no display for the hours, minutes, or seconds, the day and night offers a new way of measuring time, splitting the universe of time into two fundamentally opposing sections, day versus night. A new interpretation of time based around two turbulence operating sequentially. The day turbulent operates during the day, defining the wearer's period of activity and stops after 12 hours, handing over to the night turbulent, dedicated to a man's own private sphere. They only made nine of them. They cost around 400,000. They sold out immediately. Because of course you need some timepiece to tell you whether it's day or night. Like I want to gather the nine people and go, can I introduce you to the sun? Really solves this one for you. Now, now here, here's the problem with indulgence. There's always something stupid out there like that. And we are real prone to go, oh, look at those indulgent people. Or it's really easy to kind of look around, even with your neighbors and your friends, and you kind of see what they spend on. Ooh, I can't believe they spend on that. I would never. It's just one of those simple things that it's easy to evaluate each other. But, but the point of it is, man, let me look at my own heart. Let me, let me look at how I'm living my life. So, so how do we address this? How do we fight this sickness? Let me give you a, a, a few things here. One, you got to change perspective. It really does come down to a perspective. It really com comes down to how you view things. And, and I'll, I'll echo back to what James said last week in, in James chapter four. Part of it he's building on is why would you live this way in light of the fact, one, you'll never have enough riches to control life. And life's so short anyway. I said this point last week, I'll just bring it back. Life has more uncertainty and brevity 
than we like to admit. And, and in that, remember he said, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're, you're a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. It appears and then it's gone. Guys, life is so short here. I, I think about sometimes when you go to the movie theater, I, I like a movie when they have that great opening scene and they built it and it's so exciting. Some of them you can get like five, you're 10 minutes into it. It's so exciting. And then the credits come up. Then they have the opening sequence and all that. And you realize, oh man, that was just this opening scene. There's, there's the whole movie to come. And I always think of that because we're in the opening scene. The movie's still coming. It's called Eternity. And, and we can look at this, and I think it's part of the problem that we, we struggle with this is we start convincing ourselves, this is the movie, this is it. You only live once, and, and men, you gotta make it count now. And if that is your perspective, you better grab everything you can. J James says, oh, just trust me. This will go quicker than you thought. And how are you preparing for that time, for that day. It's amazing how this will change your perspective. You know, one of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 73. Psalm 73, I encourage you, read it sometime. So one of my favorites, it's written by a worship leader named Asaph. And he's a worship leader who starts getting jealous of wealthy people. And so at the beginning of the Psalm, he's like griping. He's like, God, wealthy people have it made. And they do whatever they want and they get whatever they want and they have the power to get away with it. They scoff at you. And he said, I'm really struggling with this. And I love, he puts this line out. He says, I can't tell anybody though. Cause he's a worship leader. So he said, I can't tell anybody how much I'm really struggling with wanting what they have. And then the perspective change in the whole Psalm, he said, until I came into your temple. And I spent some time with you. And, and in that moment, he goes, oh, I realized how precarious their position is. The very people I was so jealous of, they're in such a slippery place. This won't last. And he goes, I realized I have shelter. I have security. I have hope in you. See, part of what James is talking about, these symptoms about them, but the solution is not just to look at rich people, oh, bad people, or look at somebody else who's self-indulgent. It starts with, you would do well, we would do well. Let's look at who God is and what we have in him. And realize what he calls us to do. And recognize as well that all of us we'll give an account to Jesus for what we've been given. Every single one of us. And as believers, there's a judgment called the, the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ. In fact, he, Paul talks about it. He says, we must all, he's writing to Christians here. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each of one of us may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And he's referenced, if you go to Corinth, you can actually see the platform where the judgment seat in Corinth was. 
And, and this judge sat on the platform and from the platform, he would, he would render, especially regarding civil matters or, or financial matters, he'd render judgment with it. And Paul uses this, he says, one day you and I, we're gonna stand before Jesus. And he's gonna evaluate and, and hear me when you stand before him, he's going to talk about your life and what he gave you, your gifts and your time, your home, your resources. Now here's the great news about that day. You're not gonna be compared to anyone else. Here's the bad news about that day. You're not gonna be compared to anyone else. Because especially on this, you can kind of go, well, I, you know, what about, I mean, they waste or they do or that. Jesus isn't gonna worry about that because he's divinely created a divine curriculum for you. And, and so maybe you didn't have their resources. What'd you do with what you had? Maybe you didn't have the time that they had. They had more time than you did. Man, you were so busy and all that you were doing, just raising a family and work. You're not gonna be evaluated based on them. You're not gonna be evaluated, oh man, did you ever preach sermons? Jesus is never gonna ask you that. Because that wasn't what he asked you to do. Your job, your life is your ministry. That's what he cares about. That's what he gifted you for. That's what he's excited about. So it's not gonna be based on this, oh man, did you do ministry stuff? No, he wants to know what did you do with what he gave you? And one of the key parts of this, he's gonna ask you, hey, I blessed you in these ways financially. And scripture has said, our finances are a window in what we really believe in our heart. What'd you do with it? How did you do it in a way that it lasted and meaning? brought value. Now, some of it may be through your work, maybe through a company, man, you built something in that and employed people and it was great. So hear me, I, I am all for the use of resources in every way, but he'll also look at you and go, Hey, where were you giving? Where were you generous? Who did you invest in? You know, sometimes I'll talk to younger pastors. They're planning a church or I'll talk to missionaries. They're trying to go on the field. They're raising support. Or people that, you know, in, in ministry, they're talking about, oh man, I've got to raise money. And, and you'll talk to them and they have this kind of approach like hat in hand. They're scared to talk to anybody. It's like, you know, I'm asking somebody for money and I'm really asking them to do me a favor. And I'm always like, no, no, do not approach it that way. You listen to me. One day that person is going to stand in front of Jesus and he's going to ask them, what did you do with what I gave you? And if they actually support you, they're going to be so thrilled that day that they actually used it for the kingdom. In fact, I think they will hunt you down in heaven and thank you Amen. that you loved them enough to give them the opportunity. So don't go in there like they're doing you a favor. You're giving them a kingdom investment opportunity. They may say no, because God's got something else for them. You don't have to worry about that. You just trust God with it. I'm going to tell you, as a church, man, we got big plans this year. We're going to do a campaign later this year. And we're excited about what God's called us to. We've got big plans around that. And I am going to unashamedly look at you and call you, man, these are kingdom investments. And, and the reason I, I can do that passionately, one, I'm passionate about what God's calling us to do to reach this bay. But I also know in my life, earlier in my life, people that love me enough to 
call me to it. I am so thankful when I look back and go, Lord, thank you that we invested in that. And it actually lasts. But see, to think that way takes a change of perspective. You, you gotta be thinking, am I living for this day or am I living for that day? And how do my resources show it? It's a perspective. Second thing, we gotta be proactive. Be proactive. And, and here's what I mean in this. We are great hearers of the word. And so we'll hear a message like this and oh man, I feel convicted. Oh man, we need to pray. Oh yeah, with that. That's all great. But James said, don't be a professional hearer of sermons. What are you doing as a result? And so proactively, how, how do we address this? Look, if, instead of hoarding, give. Give generously. That's why this is one of our seven core practices of giving generously. It's one of the key ways that God protects our heart from moving to that where I want more and more and more. He says, you wanna fight that, just give. Give generously. Free your heart from that. And then with that, instead of hurting, actually go help somebody. Help your neighbor. Help someone in need. Help in, in the different ways with that. But step in proactively. Instead of just waiting, I'm proactive about it. And then the third part, instead of the high life, get low before God and others. Instead of trying to figure out how could I indulge myself the most, man, there's a healthy place of just going, man, how could I divest myself some? Where's this weighing me down? How can I put myself in a place where I see what God's doing? Here's one of the best ways to get low. I'd encourage everybody, maybe instead of a vacation one year, you or your family or as a couple, you went on a mission trip. And as you go, you don't go and hear me. We never go on a mission trip because, oh, we got to show up and go help people. Every time you go on a short-term mission trip, I promise you this, they will teach you, they will do more in your life than you do for them because you see what God's doing around the world. I experienced it this week. It was interesting. We had a Zoom call this week, a Zoom prayer call with some of our missionaries from around the world. And I love these because we get, they're, they're calling in Zoom from wherever they are. And we had one missionary in Ethiopia. We had some that are here visiting right now, but they live in Europe. We had one missionary from India. And, and just listening to him, he was describing what's going on in India. India is facing more persecution now. They're keeping a name of Christians. The threat is going up every day. And he started describing what they're living under. And man, you could just feel that. You're like, oh. And then he just smiled and he goes, oh, but there has never been a better time to be a Christian in India than right now. He goes, oh, God is doing so much. And then he starts describing all the things God's doing. And, and in that moment, I, I just found myself going, oh, I need to learn from him. We, we need to get low and allow our brothers, sisters around the world to train our hearts, to help us see our blind spots in ways when we get so fearful and holding on and recognizing what God's doing. Last thing I just say is make it personal. 
you can't do this for anyone else. This sermon today, you can't apply to anybody else because it really is between you and Jesus. You don't know what God's doing with their money. You don't know what God's doing with their resources. You don't know what God's called them to do. So if you walk out of here and you go, oh man, look at what he drives. (laughs) He needs to hear that. Look at where they live. You don't know. You don't know. And you're not supposed to. But here's what you can do is you look at your own life. And so I'd encourage you, spend some time alone with God. Just get get along with God, maybe as a couple, maybe individually. It's just such a healthy thing to go, hey God, I need you to examine my heart. I need you to talk to me. I need you to open your word to me. I need you to convict me. I need you to adjust in these categories. We serve a living God, guys. And he cares about this. So spend some time with him. And and here's the last thing I would ask you to do. Ask him what he wants you to do. Because one day he will ask you what you did. I mean, if, if you did nothing else, but just got before Jesus and go, Jesus, what do you want me to do with what you gave me? Hear me, one day you're gonna stand before Jesus and he's gonna go, hey, let's review what you did with what I gave you. Wouldn't you wanna start having that conversation more on this side of the credits? Wouldn't you wanna have it more when you've got this opportunity now? But see, to do that, we all of us have to make a choice. Am I living for today? Or am I living for the day? And do my resources and my money and the things he's given me actually show it? Let's pray. Father, we come and we thank you. We thank you for all the ways you've blessed us. You've given us so much. And and Lord, I love that you never call us to feel guilty. You, You don't guilt us about it, but you have called us to be grateful. You have called us to be wise stewards. You have called us to to help those who don't have, to be actively looking out. Lord, I I pray for each of us. I, I pray we would just individually spend some time with you. You know for each of us what you're calling us to do. And I pray we'd have the courage to trust you, the intimacy with you to open our lives, to have a conversation today instead of just waiting for that day. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that we can live this because of what Christ did. He sacrificed everything and he's teaching us how to be a sacrificial people. And we pray this in his name. Amen. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.